Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Cease striving. Uh, This was one of those passages that just instantaneously I fell in love with as a fifth grader at church camp. And I didn't know why, but there was something about the verse that just opened me up to something I had yet to truly experience. I was always a worrier. I was always filled with grief and turmoil. I was constantly going back and forth in my mind and it's something that began at such a young age. I've always loved this verse but but as I began to grow I, I realized how important context of scripture is. In today's society of fact checking everything that's said, trying to re- and rebuff everything that we hear, it's important to align things in context. When we use scripture, people want to know the reference of that and is that what Jesus really meant? Psalm 46.10 actually says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth But the context of this scripture is when Israel is actually in battle. The Israelites are in the midst of a war. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way, and I I, I love this association to the text. The command to cease striving comes from the Hebrew imperative verb, meaning to sink down, to let drop, to relax. God was literally telling his people to stop and lay down their weapons to stop fighting these senseless wars. He was angry at the Israelites for having turned to warfare rather than a complete trust to him. He said that their aggressive attempts to defend themselves actually did more harm than good, worsening their overall situation. Whenever I began to unravel the context of that late into high school, I felt myself unworthy of using that as a life verse. In reality, it was entering into undergrad that I discovered, hey, listen, Ephesians 6.12 tells me something very, very important. That our... Excuse me. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our war as a believer is not a a fighting war. Rather, it is the spiritual fight. Something that we deal with on a daily basis. We wage war in our innermost being and in our minds daily. People have always told me that I spend too much time in my head overanalyzing, overthinking, trying to see all of the outcomes before they happen. Well, that's what makes me a good administrator. But as a believer, it's something that constantly jeopardizes my heart. Because I'm trying to find the outcome before Jesus even really presents what he has before me. So cease striving. 
just, just lay it down for a minute. When I look at this and begin to, to analyze that the things that we encounter every day demand our attention to the thousands of different decisions we make on a daily basis and the better parts of which we do without even thinking. We make decisions every moment of the day without comprehending what they are or why they're doing them. As your pastor is on sabbatical, this extended period of intentional alone with God time, I kind of want to propel you on the same journey to engage God in the same fashion. It begins with an intentionality to set ourselves aside for a moment. And what we call that is solitude. We constantly state how important it is to spend time in solitude and in meditation. But somehow we confuse that in our, our brains and say, well, that means that I need to step aside for a minute and read my Bible or a devotional or I need to journal and I need to... Yes, all those things are great, but that's not actually solitude. Those are spiritual disciplines in light of solitude. Those are things that you can do while you are in solitude, sure, but that's not solitude. Solitude is to separate yourself and to stop. It's to pray. It's about having a connection with your creator. We're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning, but the driving text I want us to spend in Luke chapter 3. And as we're jumping around Luke, what we're going to experience here is how Jesus immediately begins his ministry. Not his life on this earth, rather his ministry. We see that he comes before John the Baptist, and in verse 15 to 16 of chapter 3 we see this. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." You know, we take that and begin to understand what John is saying. We fast forward over to verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. We take note of what transpires. Jesus is baptized and immediately begins his ministry. And from that moment, we see the disciples come. And then healings and, no, there's something that happens before all that. We see that Jesus immediately goes into the desert. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. You know, this enters into this temptation period with Jesus, but so often we say that Jesus was tempted for 40 days, and 
No, I, I believe we run that line together. Jesus goes into solitude and upon the conclusion towards the end of those 40 days, Jesus begins to be tempted. He enters a temptation in a realm that we can only equivalent with the entire experience of our modern day Christian life. He encounters fullness of power to survive death. To gain everything. We see that he gets in those moments, in those days, for whatever that period was, to encounter the trials that we face every day. But to me, what's so abundantly important within this is that the desert here is, is actually described as this uninhabited place. It's a remote, solitary place. It's absent of inhabitants. It could be a lonely place. It was isolation. It was solitude. When we consider what solitude is and we see that God's spirit led Jesus in 40 days of solitude and silence that he could gain the strength in order to take on the devil's temptation. Mind you, Jesus was fully man and fully God. He had to learn in his humanity to resist the devil. This is something that people arguably want to debate and they get all fed up in scripture with it, but the reality is what it states. Jesus himself was taught in his humanity to persevere through the obstacles. When we consider what solitude is for Jesus, when that time ended, we see that he withstood the attacks of Satan, but it doesn't end there. Then the next thing that transpires is that he returns to Galilee. Look in verses 13 to 15. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an appointed time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Numerous time and time again, we see throughout Scripture that Jesus doesn't tarry in one place for too long because he, he states that his purpose is to teach, is to train. And the Great Commission, we're to go out teaching, we're to carry on what Jesus began. But for Jesus, it all begins in solitude. That time of entering into a solitary place. It's not just a one-time act for Jesus. It's something that we see continuously throughout his life. Not just his ministry, because his ministry ultimately concludes in an earthly sense with his ascension back to heaven. But as a reigning king, mediating between us and God the Father, he interprets the innermost groans of the Spirit within us. The things that we don't understand, the things that we can't communicate, the burdens of life that have so overcome us and overwhelmed us, the death, the everything around us. 
And as we're there dealing with those things, not able to communicate them, the Holy Spirit gives them to Jesus and in that solitary moment gives them to our Father and says, overtake it. We release ourselves in those times. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says that Jesus often withdrew to a solitary place, often. And Luke 4.42, we see a very perfect example of this. When the day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going from them. Early in the morning, we see that the crowds are searching for him. There he prays. He's, he's taking these times to separate himself. After rising early in the morning, there he prayed. When, when we look at this and we begin to unpack what that says, he didn't rise early in the morning, get his cup of coffee, and check his email. The first thing he didn't do was check his BB&T account to see if that Costco order from yesterday was going to cause an overdraft because the wife used the bank card and not the credit card. The first thing that he didn't do was plan out his schedule for the day. He met with his father. Why? Because he learned in the wilderness, he learned in the desert, he learned in isolation that when Satan attacks, the only way to defeat him is to be grounded with his father. When we look at this and we begin to understand what it is to live a Christian life, it's not about the do's and the don'ts of society. I'm sorry. It's not. It doesn't give us an excuse for what we do. I'm not saying that. It doesn't. But we have to wrestle with that. And it's not based upon other people's decisions and determinations about who you are or what you should be. It's based upon your relationship with Christ and everybody's life looks different. And when you're in those moments and you're saying, listen, I am weak here. You know, I shouldn't have said that. It was it was out of anger. You know, I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I've been spending too much time listening to words and it so infiltrated my mind that those are the words I go to. Deal with these things in me. Revive in me. Make me new. Make me stronger. Make me better. One of the best lines I ever heard isn't was, <laughs> was from a very very potential and prominent figure in my life who simply said this. People all the time say that I am the best preacher they've heard. And it's not that. That's just the one thing that God has given me to do better than the other things. They don't know how awful I am in this, 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 and this. They don't see those parts of my life. But here's the reality. When we get into small groups, when we get to know each other intimately, then we get to see all the flaws. We get to see all the anxieties. We get to hear every comment made. 
We begin to know the thoughts of the other person because they're expressing them before us. And yet we wonder why people don't want to go to small groups. When we spend time in solitude, we're begging God to address these needs and issues in our lives so that we can be who he has created us to be in fellowship with him. Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father took precedence over his work with people. They went searching for him and tried to get him to stay. The very first thing he did in the morning was not go out healing. It was connecting on an intimate level with his God. To connect with himself. God, man, had to turn himself over on the regular basis to stay connected. How much more should we? When we look at this, the priority wasn't some formula. It wasn't a discipleship principle. It wasn't a special step in in spiritual intuition. The priority for Jesus was just to simply be with the Father. One of my favorite examples of this actually comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And teaching us how to pray, first, he tells us where to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, he says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Before the content of what we are to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he first teaches us where to pray. He encourages us to take time in an inner sanctum where we can close the door to have a distraction-free encounter with God. The reality is we don't do it today. Oh no, we do. We separate our time for solitude. I hear us talk about it all the time. Well, while I was praying this morning, I was reading through scripture and I was journaling and I was, did you ever shut your mouth? Did you ever turn your thoughts off? Because the reality is we sit and think and think and think. Why? Because silence is terrifying. What do we do in those moments? We're conditioned to think, I've got to be doing something. The Christian life is about doing. It's about being on mission. It's about being on purpose. No, it's not. It's about connecting to God. And then it's about being on mission. If you're not connecting to God first, the rest of it is irrelevant. Because what is your mission going to be? Well, I have the ability to, to talk to these people about this and I have the financial security to give this and, and I have the ability to go on this work project. Hey, all that's great and good, but don't you think God could have did that without you? He's been doing it for a long time. What is the purpose of your life as a believer? To connect with God. And then 
we go. Teaching all I have commanded of you. Teaching what you have seen after me. Don't you think the disciples would have heard about his time in the wilderness? Don't you think they would have experienced all the times Jesus left them in the early mornings and they couldn't figure out where he was? Don't you think that's something that would have sunk in? I would have hoped so, but when we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, you stay here and pray. Goes a little bit further, tells the next group, you stay here and pray and keep watch so that you do not fall into the snare of the devil. And then he goes forth and he's praying and as he's praying he comes back they're asleep goes over they're asleep wake up pay attention so that you do not fall into the snare of the devil what happens when they come to arrest Jesus one of the bright ideas is to draw a sword and Jesus goes where are you doing man you missed it so you do not fall into the snare of the devil. <laughs> what was Jesus learning in the wilderness? To resist the temptations. <laughs> to connect in solitude is to learn what you need to propel you forth to live the life in Christ that you've always heard is your obligation. And I mean it sincerely. It is an obligation. It's a commandment. We are to teach and to make, to glorify after God's own heart as he showed us. What's the reward? Well, I want to say this too. We can't just create a quiet place. It's not just about creating a quiet place. We have to cultivate a heart before God. To cultivate a heart of solitude. To allow those inner thoughts to be released. Solitude and silence, they don't only refer to alleviating outside disturbances, but also the inward noise and interruptions. I've got a lot of that. And there's so many times that, that I'll come home and I just need to stop. But we'll get to that in a moment. Like Jesus, the priority for us in prayer is being with the Father. If you don't get anything out of that previous segment, remember this. Intimacy with Jesus must be the center of our lives, not ministry for Jesus. The ministry of Jesus comes from the intimacy with Jesus. Luke chapter 5 verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. In Luke chapter 9, I, I, I tried to stay within a center gospel so we wouldn't get into one of those fact-finding missions after the sermon but in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, Jesus calls the 12 together 
And he gave them the power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out into proclaiming the kingdom of God to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. And then as he goes on describing what they are to do and how they are to do it, something miraculous happens. They go. And they do ministry. And apparently they did ministry pretty well. Because when they return, in verse 10 we read this. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethesda. When we go and do ministry, we give a report. And I'm not talking about to the leadership team or to your pastor to say, okay, this was the outcome. This is how many people we had. This was who got saved. This was da-da-da-da. We say, this is what was done. And this is my heart now. Because ministry should always affect your heart. And sometimes that effect is negative. But sometimes it's very positive. But we don't just give a report to the local body of believers. We report it back to God. And the best time to do that is when you're alone with him. Well, what makes you say that? Jesus. Jesus. They came and gave him a report. He pulled them away with him so they could be away from everybody else. Let's handle what you have been through. Let's handle the good, the bad. You think everybody received them? No, because Jesus prepared for them to not be received earlier in that passage. You think they just had a grand old time? No. That same person that said people always say what a great preacher I am also said this. If every outcome of your ministry is great and grand, you're not doing ministry. It begins in a solitary place. Immediately following this amazing and fruitful mission trip, Jesus invites his disciples to enter into solitude and silence. As followers, we need to often withdraw. Why? To deal with your crud. To deal with your crud. Praying is inviting God into our circumstances, into our hopes, into our fears, into our dreams, into our pain. Prayer's not working our way through a grocery list of requests that we desire God to perform or answer the way we expect him to. It's about living our lives before God, laying down relationally before God. And living relationally with God means that we can learn to talk to God, to listen to God, to think about God throughout 
our day, as we wake up in the morning, as we take a shower, as we're driving to the next destination, as you're sitting in your favorite chair, as you're going on a walk, as you're competing in a volleyball game or a tournament, your next relaxing favorite place of rest, we learn to live relationally with God. Because the things that we encounter daily and the things that we encounter moment by moment matter and they don't just matter to us, they matter to God because he has your ultimate good and your best interest before him. And that means handling your burdens when you know you can't and handling them when you think you can't. So often, God intervenes in our lives and we go, man, I just barely made it out of that one. Did you? Was there another hand involved there? So often, we, we, we pray for God to answer these prayer requests, but we neglect to thank him for the interventions. Oh, trust me, it's very quick to come out of our mouths most of the time. Slam on your brakes in the pouring rain and those lights right bright in front of you and you come to a screeching stop right in fine time and you say, oh, thank God. But do you really mean it? Or does it come off as a bit of a, oh, thank God. We begin to interpret these things as a spiritual truth that cuts to the core of who we are as believers. There's multiple texts we're just going to fly through here on the screen, and I'm not going to go into all of them. But the first, when you look at Philippians 4, 4 through 13, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Caring for our mental and emotional well-being is important to God and should be important to us as individuals and in a church community. And within that church community is the small group where everybody goes, oh, I didn't know he really thought like that. I didn't know he really spoke like that. I didn't know he really struggled with that. Listen, these are the times that we release who we are for accountability, for solidification with the body, and to heal ourselves before the living God. This begins in solitude. First Samuel chapter one through um, chapter one, verse one through twenty is dealing with this woman named Hannah. Hannah in her sorrow did the only thing she knew to do. She went to the Lord in prayer and she laid her burden before the Lord. In solitude, we take our mourning, our godly sorrow. We take our grief. And the point of that is that when we begin to invite God into our grief process, he will then use that experience to transform our lives and our communities in ways we could never imagine. That's why it's so important to share experiences with one another. 
I've been through that too. I've lost my dad too. I've been through cancer too. I've been through that circumstance too. And God has used it to propel me to this place in my life where I have found healing and I want to bring you with me. It's the root of the Christian life. When we have intimacy with God, we can make sense of the evil that is in our deepest, most being because at the root of us all is humanity. In Acts chapter 21, verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 23, we see ultimately Christians are called to put off the earthly behaviors like anger and rage, but there is a righteous indignation towards injustice and sin. And it has a purpose and a place within the body of Christ. Within these chapters, we see so many examples of anger, of sinful anger, but also of godly anger. Within those chapters, we see Paul confronting things and being confronted by things he had not yet experienced in the fullness till that moment. And the idea is that anger is this emotional response that God himself experiences. How we respond to the emotion will either align us with God's desire for restoration and repentance or it will lead us into further sin. Further sin. Because anger in and of itself is sin. When we look at this and and begin to unravel the final point that I want to draw you through within text for solitude is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, For the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and am now here that I still have. Our emotions are a gift and a reflection of our creator. Just as our mind was given to us as a tool for reason, our emotions are meant to be tools of discernment that ultimately empower us. And that empowerment brings forth restoration to be the ambassadors of God's kingdom that he has called us to. to respond to the obstacles and the struggles we face in life, whether anger, despair, fear, it's natural. We have the fight or flight mentality within us, but our response should be love and hope and faith, but that's supernatural responses. And those supernatural responses can only come in the sensitivity to discern between your feelings 
and its promptings. Between your feelings and God's promptings. And the only way to know the difference is to have an intimate relationship with him. I feel like I can't beat this hard enough. It is the entire crutch of the sermon. Solitude, not just for the sake of saying that we spent five minutes alone. Not in that time trying to cram in every spiritual discipline we've ever heard of and get it accomplished in a 10-minute window. Solitude is sanctifying ourselves for a moment before the living God and wrestling with ourselves. Allow our fears, our failures, allow our sins to be brought forth and then allow God to deal with them justly and then cry out, God, I keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Show me the way out. And then as you're living life, acknowledge when he's showing you the way out. Because a lot of times, we would rather reject it. Because our way is more comfortable. When we look at these, there's ultimately three reasons why it's so difficult for us to do so. Ironically, the most common objection to taking time to withdraw away is that we're too busy. Our human desire to be connected in the know, the business of life, it's extremely challenging to experience the silence in our loud, digitally connected world. I love when people say, oh, I had my moment alone with God this morning. I said, oh, great. Did you take your Bible? And said, yep. And I said, was it on the phone or the tablet or was it the actual book? was the phone, but my Bible's on my phone. Yeah, that's great. Did you get any texts? Facebook's right there. It's real easy. Why bring more temptation into that moment with you? When you go into solitude, take a Bible, a pen, and a sheet of paper. It's that simple. Now, I know many of you are way more righteous than I am, and you don't get distracted by social media and a text message, and the New York Times, and what's happening in Israel, and what's happening in Nepal, and where's COVID right now? Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? I know none of those things are on your mind as soon as you step into an isolated, solitary confinement. But for me, they do. But if I have scripture, a pad of paper, or a piece of paper, and a pen, my attention is centered. In our solitude, God is our focus. If not, nothing else is going to be accomplished. Our cell phones are the distraction. I love this statement. I need a vacation from my vacation. You ever said that before? I have. Why? Because we try to cram as much into that one week window as we can. I've got to do it all. I'm going to Disney. I've got a two day pass and I'm hitting five parks, baby. We are going from sun up to sundown. We're doing the jumper passes. We're doing. Why? Because we got to take it all in. Why? 
we're going to the beach, but we got to make sure that on the way to the beach, we're going to stop here and we're going to get grapes and oranges from this place and we're going to get fruit from this stand. And then once we get there, we're going to hit go-karts the first time and we've got the itinerary planned and over by the day two of vacation. And on day three, you're sitting there going, wow, I can't believe we leave in like 72 hours. You're sitting on the beach and your little alarm goes off. Hey, honey, I know you're resting right now, but we got to get back up to the condo, get cleaned up for dinner. We're going to be late. You're on vacation. Be late to dinner. I love this one. I can't believe we drove all the way to Michigan to come to Myrtle Beach and eat at this restaurant. Yes, I have heard these words. And eat at this restaurant and we have to wait for two hours. Be on vacation. Spend that two hours chilling with your family. Utilize your time. We try to cram in so much in our daily life. Why? Silence allows us to pay a greater attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives and speaking to us. It's in the stillness and quietness of life that we often begin to develop a deeper and truer sense of self-awareness. I love this quote from uh, Mr. Bonifer who says, we are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have to look at ourselves in the mirror. We're on vacation to get away from the hassle of life and we do it with our families and we claim that it's to spend time with our families but yet we're cramming for event after event after event because it's fun or because we don't have to have those conversations with one another because we don't know how to talk to one another anymore. Maybe our problem with solitude and isolation before the living God is that we don't know how to communicate even with ourselves and the people that are directly descended from us. We can't do it in our own lives, yet alone with the living God. Solitude is the root of all of the Christian life. The third point of that is spiritual warfare. It's so difficult because of spiritual warfare. I quoted Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That spiritual warfare is an easy way to keep the believer down. If you're distracted by everything else, then Satan wins. We become so self-absorbed, Satan wins. Look at those first two examples that I gave you. To be too busy and that our modern human nature to be alone in silence was not something difficult for my grandmother to do. But it is pulling teeth for my eldest nephew Brody. You take away his iPad for five minutes, the world has ended. My grandmother disappears for five hours. We're like, yeah, she's probably just chilling on the porch. Seriously, when we look at this and we begin to examine, why is it so hard for us? I think Bonifer had it right. 
We are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next just so we don't have to spend a moment alone. And that's all God is calling us to as believers. Spend time with me. Know me. Know my heart. Have conversations with me. Let me take your stress and your anxiety. Let me guide you to a fulfilling life. That spiritual warfare piece, John 10.10, one of my all-time favorite verses, one of your pastor's favorite verses of scripture of all time. For the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and life to the fullest measure. When we look at what a fulfillment of life is, is to be able to release the hardship, to release ourselves and know that we can live life well intended, to glorify God because we don't have the burdens and the shame and we don't have the need for that constant self-reflection of, oh, woe is me, but rather, God, where are you glorified in my life and how can I do it better? It begins with solitude. Here's your conclusion. Allow the truth of who you are to surface this week. Start with five minutes. I would not wish anyone to start with 30. Start with five minutes. And allow yourself to just unravel before the living God. And say, man, this is me. The ugly. This is who you've called forth to be your child. This is who I am. This is my sin. This is where I miss you. This is where I reject you. This is where I deny you. God, deal with this in me. And show me where I glorify you so that I can do that routinely. Show me how to praise you. Unravel the flaws in all and then remember that God loves you deeply and unconditionally. Ask him to meet you right where you are and help you grow more into the person he wants you to become. Let's pray. God, that is the prayer this morning. Get us silent. Push on us to reveal to you where we are in our lives right now, in our hearts, where we're frustrated, where we're missing you. And then move in us to create in us a clean heart so that we may glorify you to the utmost. 